The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant, 7 to 10 a.m. Six minutes past nine, you are with the Jet Set Breakfast. And if you have just joined us, well, what did you miss in the last hour? We chatted to the ceramicist, world-renowned ceramicist, Andile Dilvane, about his Itongo collection. And that is a series of ancestral images which have been created as ceramic articles. Really beautiful stuff. We then went on to talk to the author of a book called The Golden Rhino, Griffin Shear, and we got a young reviewer to look at the book as well, focusing on how you can take fiction and engage with history, but also how you can look at issues of being alone, being perhaps a shy kind of person, and what that really, really means. And then we focused on the National Reading Collect Coalition, which is the NRC, and how over the next year there are going to be 12 virtual reading experiences around the country. It's time for us to go into our guest presenter, and he is a man who needs absolutely no introduction, but hey, why not? Let's just do it anyway. He's an endurance swimmer. He's the United Nations patron of the oceans, and he recently was appointed the ambassador of the Royal Commonwealth Society. He also has an interesting taste in music, and this is his first song. That seems like an absolutely fantastic way to start it. Lewis Pugh, our guest presenter for today, starting off with William Barton, Didgeridoo Solo Number 2. And uh, we were just talking off air as the song was playing. 
how it talks to ancient sounds, but it also talks in many ways, I mean, and Dosh was saying it almost sounds like whale sounds as well. Yes. Uh, good morning, Michelle, and good morning to all your listeners. I had the privilege last year of being at Westminster Abbey, and uh, it was the 70th anniversary of the Commonwealth, and William Barton was playing the didgeridoo. And uh, William comes from northeast Queensland. He's an Aboriginal musician. Mm. He's a premier musician. And I tell you something, when you're in Westminster Abbey and you listen to him walk past and play that didgeridoo, it literally reverberates through your body. And just before he went up and he played the didgeridoo, he said something to me which just put everything into perspective. And just, just, to, just to set the scene, Westminster Abbey is an amazing building. Right? Every king and queen since 1066 has been crowned in Westminster Abbey. Yeah. It's the burial place of Charles Darwin, of David Livingston. When you walk into Westminster Abbey, you walk into, into history. history. And... Um, William Barton said to me as he was about to, to stand up and, and give his, his, uh, uh, his piece, he said, you know, I want to bring my culture into this incredible building. I want to share it with the world because this mm. was now being, this was now live uh, around the world. I said to him, how old is your culture, William? And he said, oh, 60,000 years old. <laughs> It uh, puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? It does, and sometimes it's good in life to zoom out and to get yeah. perspective. Yeah. Louis, uh, I suppose that does take us to um, the Ambassador of the Royal Commonwealth Society. That's a hell of a title, and it raises two questions. What is the function to this day of the Commonwealth? I mean, I have certain opinions about that. Um, mm. Having worked, actually, in my own capacity with the Commonwealth, but... What is the role of the Commonwealth to you? And why is something of this nature important to the work that you do? It's interesting. So that service at Westminster Abbey, uh, and it was a service of celebration. Um, uh, it was 70 years of the Commonwealth, and Her Majesty the Queen asked me to give an address to the Commonwealth about the importance of protecting our oceans. And if you think about the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth is a collection of... Uh, over 50 nations, and they are in every single ocean of the world. Mm. We have Commonwealth nations in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, yeah. in the Southern Ocean, and then we've got Canada, which is up in, the, up in the Arctic Ocean. But the thing about Commonwealth nations are that most of them have coastlines. We are huh. linked yeah. by our waters. And our common, and, and, and what I was trying to say our to Commonwealth the Commonwealth on the 70th, yes, what I was trying to say to the yeah. Commonwealth on our 70th anniversary is that our Commonwealth yes. is our oceans. And we often think of the Commonwealth as a collection of people. So, and it is. So of Indians, of Pakistanis, of Australians, South Africans, Namibians, Kenyans, uh, you know, yeah. and, uh, Jamaicans, etc. But the Commonwealth is also the home of the polar bear. The Commonwealth is also the home of the emperor penguin, of the Great Barrier Reef, of some of the most incredible wildlife on our planet. And that was my message to the Commonwealth this year or last year. We're talking to Lewis Pugh. He's just been made uh, and appointed the ambassador of the Royal Commonwealth Society. But not just that, he's an endurance swimmer. He's the United Nations patron of the oceans. You know, Lewis, we were talking about um, what it meant to have a conversation with you. And 
we started to think about the idea that, you know, we can talk to you about penguins a little later. We, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the creatures of the earth. But also what we wanted to talk to you about was purpose. And I want to take you back to when you felt that your purpose was seeded. When did that happen? I don't think there was any specific moment. Yeah. So it has been a, gradu a gradual awakening. So I've been swimming now for uh, nearly 35 years. I've swum mm -hmm. in all the oceans of the world. And over that period of time, I've seen our oceans change, you know, hugely. Yeah. And so, you know, initially when I started swimming, it was to be the first. Yeah. I, I was a pioneer swimmer. Uh, and when I started swimming, many of the famous landmarks had not been swum. Um, so it started off in that way. But when you go into the oceans and you see them change so dramatically as I have, then uh, I think, you know, there, there, was, there was one specific moment. I was doing a swim uh, down near Antarctica uh, on an island called Deception Island. And I started swimming across this bay. And then underneath me were literally hundreds and hundreds of whale bones, jaw bones, rib bones, spine bones. Uh, and some of them were piled up so high that when I was swimming, my hands would literally touch those bones. Uh, this was the epicenter of the whaling industry about a hundred years ago. And I think after that swim, I, I said to myself, you know, I now need to be a voice for the oceans. I trained as a maritime lawyer. I'm a maritime lawyer. I'm a mm. swimmer. I'm in the oceans all the time. I'm seeing the ocean change. I need to be a voice for the oceans. Not just a maritime lawyer, but also a professor of law at the University of Cape Town as well, which I was very impressed to see. I think if I was studying, you know, you know, maritime law, I'd love to go to UCT just for that. You know, what you've touched on is this idea of shifting from ego to purpose. Um, you you started out by swimming to be the first, and as you say, pretty much all the oceans have now been swum, and now you need to. And you've been doing this now for a while, but now you need to demonstrate why this is important. As someone who has gone through that shift and change, you talk about the whale bones and it's an extraordinary story, but what does that change mean for you personally? Are you asking about the personal change mm, inside The personal me? change to purpose, yeah. Mm. The interesting thing about swimming is that, so in most sports, the more experience you have, the better you are at that sport. Yeah. There's one sport, though, where the more experience you have, the more challenging it becomes. And that yeah. is endurance swimming or cold water swimming. And the reason for that is that when you have been really, really, really cold, as I yeah. have been, you'd never quite warm up again. Okay. So in order to do any subsequent swim, I have to forget about what happened at the North Pole. I have to forget what happened in a glacial lake on Mount Everest. I have to forget Spitsbergen. I have to forget East Antarctica. Mm. I have to forget all these things in order to get back into the water again. Yeah. And so having a driving purpose, which for me is to try and protect the oceans, enables me to be able to do these swims. Yeah. But there comes a moment and I don't know how far away it is when I just simply won't be able to get into these waters. Oh. So recently I did a swim down in Antarctica to mm. try and, 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 and show what's happening uh, in East Antarctica. And then afterwards I went to, to, to Moscow to 
meet with President Putin's number mm. two, a man called Sergei Ivanov. And I was walking across Red Square to walk into the Kremlin to start the negotiations. And as I walked across Red Square, I could literally feel every single cobble underneath my foot. So Red Square is huge, the mm. cobbles right the way across Red Square, but my feet were so badly frostbitten from the swim which I had done in Antarctica that I could feel every single cobble. And I was asking myself, I said, Lewis, Are you ever how much do longer this? can mm. you do this? Yeah. We're going to find out how much longer you think you can do it. We need to go to a break. We're talking to Lewis Pugh. Lewis, we want to talk about that Antarctica swim because I have to say that I've watched some of the images. I've seen some of your tweets and I cannot think of anything worse. So uh, I'd like you to maybe when we come back also just talk about the images, the extraordinary images that you allowed us to see during that swim. We are talking to Lewis Pugh. We're going to a break. And when we come back, we'll hear more. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. So for those of you who can't take a little cold, who feel the cold in your bones and in your body, imagine what it must be like to be swimmer Lewis Pugh. He's an endurance swimmer and he has swum a variety of oceans. And most recently, the Antarctica was uh, one of those spaces. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Lewis, one of the um, images, and, and you write about it or speak about it uh, in something that I read or watched, you spoke about the fact that when you were in Antarctica, you were swimming under the ice. So you were basically swimming in rivers under the ice, which one is kind of disturbing because it implies that the melting is going faster than people might even be able to see. But the idea of that, the claustrophobia, the fear, how do, how what do you need to do that, apart from a very tough body? I think you need courage. And mm. courage is an interesting thing. You, you know, you need to be able, on the one hand, you need to be able to put the fear to one side. Yeah. Mm. And fear can be absolutely crippling, especially when you uh, want to swim underneath the East Antarctica ice sheet down a river, as you explained. Because, you know, swimming down a river underneath the ice is... Uh, it's what we call a high consequence environment. If things go wrong, they will go very, very wrong there. Uh, but the second thing is that courage is contagious. Mm. And so I surrounded myself by a team of very, very courageous people. I had the former president of Costa Rica, a man called uh, Jose Maria Figueres yeah. um, with me. I had Slava Fetisov, a great Russian ice That's hockey right. player. Ice hockey player. Um, I had Dr. Charlotte Haldane, a British doctor who's an incredibly courageous person. You know, when you surround yourself by courageous people, you look inside yourself and it brings out the courage in you. But courage is also a muscle. You've got to exercise it on a regular basis. Wow. Because if you don't do it, when you mm. need it, you won't be able to have it. Anyway, I was standing at the entrance to this tunnel. And just to explain, uh, there are rivers now on the East Antarctica ice sheet. And these rivers then uh, go underneath the ice. And at some places there are cracks in the ice and those rivers literally drop vertically. There's like, they're like a whirlpool which drop vertically about 300 meters straight the way down to the bedrock. Oh no. Uh, and that's the problem because what happens is it actually lubricates the bedrock and it makes the East Antarctica ice sheet or makes part of it Move. unstable. So it shifts into the sea. So before you, I'm going to go down this river, you know, you have so many worries. 
you think to yourself, you know, what happens if I go down one of these holes, if it spontaneously opens up? What happens if a piece of ice falls down on top of me? But ultimately, you've got to try and put that fear to one side. So the Inuit people, the indigenous people who live in the Canadian Arctic, they say that in every single one of us, there is an almighty battle taking place. It's a battle between a good wolf and a bad wolf. And which wolf is going to win? It's a wolf which you feed. And I remember the night before that swim in my tent on the East Antarctica ice sheet, and the wind was howling. And all I could think of was, gosh, I wonder if, the, if some ice falls on my head or if I go down one of these holes or this ice is so, so sharp and you've got stalactites yeah. from the roof. You know, you could put your hand into a stalactite and literally slice it open. And before I could, you know, suddenly all these thoughts come into my mind and it's exactly what the Inuit people say. They say that that wolf will literally take you and rip you out of your tent. And you've just got to get a control of it. Which wolf will you feed? So how many meters is that river underneath the ice? Oh, well, I mean, there, there, there are plenty of rivers there. I mean, I swam for just over 10 minutes down this, uh, down this tunnel. Uh, I remember getting to the end and there was Slava Fetisov and he grabbed me, the Russian, and he pulled me out. Uh, we have a tent in which I go in and I then heat myself up in afterwards. Anyway, we hadn't tested out the heating system and the heating system was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, crazy. We hadn't actually properly tested the heating system. We thought that it would work. And then we, they, as I started the swim, they, they, they turned on the heater, heaters inside the tent. And so it nearly burnt the tent down. So they had to stop it. So I get out of the river thinking I'm <laughs> going to be getting into a nice warm tent. And actually it was freezing cold. And the only way that they could actually heat me up was that Slava Fetisov got inside the tent with me yeah. and got inside my sleeping bag with me yeah. and then hugged me. So Human that wasn't warmth. my... Yes, it wasn't uh, exactly how I thought that I would be warmed up by a big <laughs> Russian ice hockey player. But, but, but Better a say, Russian ice hockey but, player than a Russian bear, pal. <laughs> it's like... I've got to say that he's a very good hugger. He's a very good hugger. <laughs> I, I, I warmed up and then yeah. five days later, the two of us were in the Kremlin together. Sure. So, Lewis, you know, for people who are trying to imagine that, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you were looking around you while you're swimming over those three. But what, what do you see? What, I mean, I've seen some, some images and the colors are the blue and the, yeah. the, 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 the translucency. I mean, it's like a watercolor, but the intensity. Tell us about that. Oh, no, I, I was looking around because yeah. the colors were absolutely amazing. Yeah. As I entered the tun tunnel, it was this beautiful light blue. And then the tunnel sort of meanders underneath the ice. And then it goes from a beautiful light blue to a dark blue. And then it goes into a royal blue. And then from a royal blue, it goes into an indigo. And then it went into a violet. And halfway down the tunnel... It then got so dark that I actually had to pull the goggles on top of my head and start swimming breaststroke mm. uh, because I'm meandering uh, through this tunnel. And um, I remember at one stage saying to myself, and remember this water is really cold. It's just marginally above zero. And so you're in a race against time to get through the tunnel and then heat yourself up afterwards. But I said to myself, Lewis, slow down. This is amazing. Nobody has ever been here before. Nobody will ever swim down this again, yeah. probably. And just, I, I, I stopped swimming. I looked up 
and it was like a cathedral underneath the ice. It was absolutely beautiful. And then I carried on swimming through the ice. But one thing which is absolutely terrifying is that the ice is obviously moving. Yeah. And when that ice moves, you sometimes hear these cracks. And these cracks are like cannon shots which come down that tunnel. And it is quite terrifying. And I remember one of the one moment I heard an enormous crack. I looked up and I thought to myself, please. Don't let it be a Please aesthetic. don't let the, don't let all this stuff come tumbling yeah. down on top of my head. It, it didn't. Yeah. I swam through, and as I say, there was Slava to grab me <laughs> and pull me out at the other at the other end. Lewis, uh, you say that there's only a certain amount of time that you have in order to swim, and you mentioned ten minutes earlier. So I'm assuming you don't have much longer. That you, you'd have to give us what that number is. But you also. Um, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued that you've chosen always in all your swims. You swim in a speedo. First of all, kudos to speedo. I hope that they're one of your big-time sponsors. But why do you choose to go in the flesh? I think it's also about respecting uh, the sport, respecting mm. our ancestors. So, you know, endurance swimming started in, in 1875 uh, in Dover, uh, in, in England, uh, with Captain Matthew Webb swimming across the English Channel. Yeah. So he swam, from, he swam from Dover to Calais. And now for all endurance swimmers, the, the Everest of swims always has been, always will be, is to swim across the English Channel. And the rules are very, very simple. You wear a Speedo cap and goggles. You, yeah. can, put some, you can put some goose fat on yourself if you want to. Um, I found that it doesn't help a jot. But yeah. uh, those are the rules. And what I like about that is that I can now compare myself to the ancestors and to the original pioneers mm. in the sport. And those people who come after me will also be able to compare their times and what they have done with the swims which I have done. So that aspect I really, really like. So it's not that equipment is getting better and better and better. It's been the same since 1875. Yeah. Okay, but the other reason uh, is that I am doing these swims to highlight what is happening to our oceans. I'm trying to get world leaders to protect the oceans. I'm urging them to be courageous, to make the hard decisions, to create... They must take the courage that you take. They must be courageous. Yeah. They must be courageous. Because these decisions are not easy. You're often balancing a lot of different interests. Uh, You know, at the moment, world leaders are dealing with so many different Mm. issues... But I'm asking them, please do not forget about the environment. It is the defining issue of our generation. Be courageous. It's a wonderful way. We're going to go to uh, our sports. (laughs) We're talking about endurance sports. 9.30, as uh, Lewis Pugh, our guest, says, be courageous. So a couple of things coming up now is uh, which wolf are you going to feed if you're going to be courageous? And uh, indeed, just be courageous. 9.30. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. He's on the line with us. He's spoken to us about what it means to be an endurance swimmer. And I suppose in this part of the hour, we're going to be looking about at his uh, being a patron of the oceans. And in particular, we want to look at the lives of penguins. But before we go there, Lewis Pugh, you've actually got a smile on your face now. I see on Skype you're smiling. And I want to know... Is that the kind of music that makes you happy? It did make me want to pull on some lederhosen and, and go dancing around the room to, to cowbells and the like. I love that music. Uh, it was called That Happy Feeling. Yes. And um, 
it actually reminds me of penguins. <laughs> so penguins are so so penguins are so comical the way they walk and they the way they waddle down the beach and um uh, whenever i listen to that song it reminds me of simon's town in in near cape town where i do a lot of my training and they uh, you know african penguins waddling down the beach i think that that song should be the official penguin national anthem Well, I I'm trying to think of that wonderful documentary The Long March about penguins. And I'm trying to think yes. of the music that was there, but what really struck me I remember already then. You talk about the comicalness, but what actually really struck me was this kind of weird tenderness that um a penguin couple has for one another. Perhaps you could just talk about that. I mean, I love penguins. I I mean, So on land they're obviously a little bit ungainly and and they stumble and they fall and then they get themselves up and then they carry <laughs> on but when they get into the water it is absolutely unbelievable to swim with a, a penguin is to swim is to feel very inadequate because yeah. they swim so beautifully whether it be with an african penguin off Simonstown or whether you're deep in the southern ocean and you're swimming with an emperor penguin they are magnificent swimmers are they like dolphins do they kind of join you in the swim or are they very like ugh there goes one of those humans doing something silly again <laughs> uh, more the latter uh, so they don't really come uh, so close to you they are inquisitive yeah. so certainly on land if yeah. you're in south georgia and you're on land and you see these king penguins come ashore now i want you to imagine thousands and thousands of king penguins literally rushing towards the beach and then they come up they stand up and they walk towards you and they have no fear of humans because they're only scientists down there mm. uh, i mean it's they are amazing so then but in the sea they're not they're not really like dolphins which can be so inquisitive can come up to very very close mm. and smile at you and dart away Mm. Uh, so they're slightly different. You are talking about all our friends who we don't treat as friends actually in the ocean and in many ways I suppose that's the challenge is that as human beings we've forgotten this idea of um equality maybe between the animals of the oceans the oceans themselves. Talk to us about that equality. Yeah, I mean I've always seen protecting the environment as an issue of justice. Yeah. Right? So justice between ourselves and future generations. So there's something very very wrong about us not protecting the environment so that our children and our grandchildren mm, exactly. simply don't have a future. But also I see it as a question of environmental justice. So justice between ourselves and other species. Exactly. We share this earth with you know the most incredible animals down in the southern ocean when you're there and you see these emperor penguins and the king penguins and the humpback whales coming out of the water we share this world with these incredible animals we must respect them let's talk about respect you have been working very hard with um the concept of our penguins close to home and the dangers that face them. Before we get to your first guest who is Ronnie Daniels, head of communications at the Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds, tell us about your campaign right now. Well, it was interesting. So 2 weeks ago I went down to Betty's Bay to look at some of the African penguins down yeah. there. So there's a colony down there and I was shocked. So I was there with a conservationist conservation scientist and she was pointing out the penguins and how thin they were so they come ashore they've eaten out at sea they come ashore and then for a 21 day period they molt 
They get rid of their feathers, they get a new set of feathers, they then get wax on those, on those feathers, they oil them up, and then they've got to go out to sea to fish again. Mm. So for 21 days, they've got to have enough food inside themselves to survive. And she was pointing out these penguins, which were so thin, so emaciated. And she was pointing them out and she was saying, that one, I don't think that one's going to survive. And that one is very unlikely to survive. And just look how thin that one is. And you could literally see the, you know, the chest bone of that penguin. And it reminded me of what I've seen in the north of this world, in the Arctic, where you see polar bears, uh, which haven't been able to eat, which are stuck on land, haven't been able to get onto the sea ice, and are literally starving there. To see starving penguins close to home was very uncomfortable. Ronnie Daniels, Ronis Daniels, is on the line. Ronis, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Well, it's not really the opportunity to speak with me. Your uh, guest host (laughs) is none other than uh, Lewis Pugh. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Lewis. Um, yeah, Michelle, so, um, I mean, we've always been keen followers of Lewis and the work that he's doing and the awareness that he's creating during his uh, swimming. And um, we've been fortunate to partner with him this year where he came on board and approached us to work with us and to just really? help us put out the message of the plight of the African penguin in a, in a bigger statement out on our social media platforms and to our public audiences. So it's been an, an amazing couple of months working with Lewis. Ronis, you say the plight of the African penguin. In, in, a, in a sentence, what would that plight be? So, Michelle, uh, the numbers of the African penguin species is declining, and there are, are many reasons for that, uh, one being the, the lack of, of fish in the oceans, and mm. that is a, a problem that, that these penguins are, are having to, to fight through every day. And um, I really believe that with our partnership with Lewis, we, we can do something about that. Lewis, you are an ambassador. You're a, a great ambassador, a great lobbyist, and you have access all over the globe with regards to the work that you do. What is the big shout out that you will start to do with the African penguins? Because let's be frank, if I'm sitting um, in Canada, I'm not sure that my worry is going to be the African penguins, but it probably should be as part of a much broader ecosystem. Yes, I I mean, the numbers make very, very uncomfortable reading. So when surveys began in the early 1990s, there were 3 million African penguins. Since then, we've lost 95% of the population and their numbers continue to drop. So in 2000, there were an estimated 53,000 African penguins. Now there are just 17,700 penguins. So we've gone from 1900 3 million, now down to 17,700 pairs of breeding penguins. The numbers don't lie. So I think that if you live in Canada, if you live wherever you live in the world, the the one thing that I know about penguins is that everybody loves penguins. I don't care where you are in the world, everybody loves penguins. And so it should worry everybody. Because also because penguins are an indicator species. Yeah, They tell us what is happening in the oceans. So conservation scientists, shortly we'll be having one of them uh, on the line, mm. you know, they can count these penguins. This is, I was speaking the other day to a lady who is trying to count blue whales. 
Now, the blue whale is the biggest animal that's ever lived on this earth, but it's incredibly elusive. Mm. She says that she spends days trying to find blue whales. Getting burnt, sitting on her boat, looking for blue whales, can hardly find them. (laughs) Penguins are very, very different. You can count them. They don't fly. They come ashore. They molt. You can count them very, very, very easily. And those numbers tell us what is happening in the oceans. Three big things are happening. Climate change, overfishing, and pollution. They've come together to create this... Triumvirate of evil. Correct. Yeah. Ronis, very briefly, because we are going to go to uh, Lewis. Time just simply flies. We're going to go to Lewis, the second guest in a moment. But I know that you are involved in a, um, a breeding program at the moment. And I wonder if you could briefly tell our listeners, but also tell our listeners how people can get hold of you if they want to support that. Um, yeah, so, so Michelle, um, I think it will be best for our, our scientific uh, guest that's coming on board to tell you about the science behind the breeding okay. of the penguins. Yeah, so, but, but I mean, what I would like to say to listeners is to please um, read up about the penguin species to, to visit our website, which is sancob.co.za, and to find out exactly what the penguin species is facing out in the wild and how they can support and get involved. They, I mean, there's, there's ways for them to just be mindful when going out to beaches and yeah. and not polluting or picking up what they see on the beaches. And also, of course, to, to bring to our attention if there is a seabird that's in need of rescue because we do offer a 24-hour rescue service. Um, and we rely on the public to, to share that kind of information with us so that we can get there quickly and rehabilitate them at, at our facility in Sableville. Ronis, thank you so much for joining us. Ronis Daniels, Marketing and Fundraising Officer of SANCOB, which is the Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. Lewis, we have your next guest on the line, Dr. Lauren Waller, penguin scientist and ecologist. Why did you choose Dr. Waller? Oh, she's very, very special and... Um I went with her down to this uh, penguin colony and uh, she was showing me all these penguins and she just has such a love for penguins. I mean, that goes for all the people at Sankob. Uh, I go and visit various charities around the world who are doing their level best to protect the environment. But Sankob is my favorite. They really, they're a group of lots and lots of volunteers come in every day to clean these penguins, to rehabilitate them. And uh, Lauren is, is, is their conservation scientist. When we come back from the break, we'll be talking to Dr. Lauren Waller. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. He's our guest presenter. He's on Skype with us, and it's none other than Lewis Pugh. And I have to say, the fabulous thing about being on Skype is you start to see people's spaces that they're in. And haloing Lewis Pugh is this amazing-looking map, and I can't see exactly where it is, but I imagine it's one of the Arctic circles. I can't quite see it. Thumbs up or thumbs down, Lewis? Am I right? No, thumbs down. That's oh. actually a, 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 it's actually a map of the English Channel. So, <laughs> so, so, so two years ago, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So two years ago, I swam the length of the English Channel, yeah. and it took me forty-nine days. And so I remember each and every kilometer of that swim. And so I put that that chart up on my wall. Just to remind you, she's on the line, Dr. Lauren Waller. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. 
And morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for, for having me, uh, you and, and Lewis, and morning to all of your listeners. You know, I read an interesting thing about you where you were talking about um, two things, actually, and we were discussing this much earlier on in the show. How we choose sustainable seafood, one, and how we protect penguins in our own way. Talk to us about that. So, Michelle, I think the, um, you know, we're so used to uh, conservation being the role of, of government organizations and um, uh, government NGO, uh, uh, conservation NGOs and, and things like that. And it's just, it's just not the case. And by virtue of the fact that we live on this planet, we breathe air, we, we use resources, every single one of us yeah. have got to make decisions to live in a way that's aligned to what the planet needs. And we, we each have a role and a responsibility to live in that way and to make the right and informed choices. Yeah. What are some of those right and informed choices? So I guess in the, for now, in, in the, the context we're speaking about with the, the African penguin, there is... They're facing so many threats, penguins the world over. So, um, you know, climate change being one of them. So do you even know what your, your carbon footprint is? Are you making choices where you can, as an individual, um, make a difference? Uh, I remember reading in one of Lewis's books, uh, I forget the example that he used. He can probably remember it. Um, it was a, a Chinese person he was speaking to. You know, these Big problems are insurmountable, like climate change. But then you've got a billion people that are making the choice, mm. the right choice. Those billions of individual actions become so much more effective. Yeah. So our plastic usage, um, yeah, just, just day-to-day um, choices that you can make that are beneficial to, to not only penguins. You know, penguins are, you can look at them as... Um, uh, indicators mm. of, of environmental health, and they're telling us that there's a problem, and so we need to we need to listen to that. We need to be aware and and make our choices accordingly. So, Lewis, you were talking a little earlier about that as well. If you had to speak to a whole bunch of young kids today, and in fact, I, I feel why should you even be talking to the kids because they're the ones that are being impacted by this? But if you did, what would the things be that you would say? Listen, guys. Face up, look up, and do this. Uh, uh, Kids are a very, very important audience. But when it comes to the African penguin, the single most important audience is perhaps the Minister of the Environment. Three simple decisions that she can take today which will impact and help save the African penguin. Number one is to create a no-take zone around these African penguin colonies. Okay. Okay. What does that mean, a no-take zone? A no-take zone means no fishing around the, around the penguin okay. colonies. We, we can't have a situation where penguins are having to fight with fishermen for their food in yeah. order to, to survive. Uh, number two is the importance of ensuring that offshore bunkering doesn't take place near penguin colonies. So what I mean by that is that a lot of the refueling which takes place with ships at sea is from a ship, goes up to another ship, and they transport oil from one ship to the next. And incredibly... This takes place in Algoa Bay in the Eastern Cape, very, very close to a penguin colony. Yeah. If, that's, if you get a spill and they've had two recent spills, you can literally take out a whole penguin colony. Yeah. 
Yep. Okay. And number three is the importance of having a wildlife response plan. So in the event of having an oil spill, spill. the ship owners yep. have a responsibility to look after and to protect and to clean up the mess which they have created. Those three things, three very, very simple requests will make all the difference. Have you had um, a, meeting, a meeting with the minister on this? I haven't. I've written to her maybe four times in the past few months asking for a meeting. I've had no response. Minister Barbara Creasy, we hope you're listening at this point because this does sound like something that you should do. Lewis, I've got two very quick questions for you, and they need to be quick because we're about to close off. The first one would be, some people might say, yes, but a fisherman deserves the life, the job, etc., more than a penguin. Yes, I hear that, and jobs are very, very important. But the day for inaction has long passed. Mm. We now need to protect the environment. And what we're asking for, what we are asking for is, number one, easily doable. But number two is actually very little. We're asking for 0.5% of South Africa's waters to be protected. 0.5%. And if you think about all the people whose jobs rely on penguins in South Africa, it is thousands and thousands. Think about all the tourists who come to mm. South Africa to look at penguins. Think about the restaurant owners. Think about the people who got the B&Bs. Think about the people who hire the cars. Thousands of people in this country rely on penguins, rely on rhinos, on elephants, on the national parks, on the marine protected areas. Those jobs matter. Okay, you've got a few seconds to answer this last question. You spoke about the ancestors earlier, which of course intrigued me uh, no end, because before that we'd been talking to the ceramicist Andile Dilvane, who had also been talking about the ancestors, and he's created um, some beautiful symbols, and the one is for ancestral landscapes. There's the ancestors and our ancestral landscapes. It seems to me you have swum through those landscapes. Give us an example. You've given us many examples, but give us one more example for people to remember what this earth is all about. I remember swimming down in Antarctica next to a glacier. Now, this glacier has been coming down the mountain and now big chunks of ice are falling into the sea. And trapped inside that ice are little bubbles of air which were trapped there thousands and thousands of years ago. And when you've got your head in the water and you listen to that ice dropping into the sea and those little bubbles, it, it sounds like rice, crips, rice krispies. It sounds like snap, crackle, pop. And to swim there is literally to swim in history. Lewis Pugh, you're a great interviewee. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on SAFM. Thank you. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.